You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 74. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Klar. All right, welcome everyone to The Local Maximum. You have reached another Local Maximum. Today we are rejoined by my co-host Aaron. Aaron, how are you doing today? It's good to be back. It's uh, It's been longer than we thought it would be, but... But I'm back How now. was your trip? You were uh, you were pretty far away, weren't you? I, yeah, I was gallivanting through Europe. Um, gallivanting, huh? <laughs> yeah, I was. It was uh, had to go to headquarters for some meetings, but made it made All a good right, time well, of it. One time we have to do um, a, a an episode about what you do because I still have no idea after all these years. Um, <laughs> okay, so if you noticed, if you've been on localmaxradio.com recently, I have a new video on the website that um, it's kind of hastily put together, I'll admit, but uh, I kind of ran downstairs and did it. But I sort of talk about why I started The Local Maximum and what you're going to get out of this out of this podcast. So um, I'm excited about that. I think I f- focused on the idea that all of these engineers and people have these like, you know, flashes of insight when they're doing their work. And those flashes of insight never get out. They always get trapped in people's brains. And so we got to bring it out here. Secondly, a little bit of news for today. We have a news update. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about gerrymandering, followed by the end of the world. Don't you want to talk about the end of the world? That's a good way to end, isn't it? Always, right. always first, go out on a low note. <laughs> yeah. uh, first, the daily news for today, uh, a Cloudflare internet outage. What does that mean? Earlier today, you may have noticed this in the internet. You got these 502 gateway errors like... I don't know, something like 5 10% of the internet was down uh, because of a cloud service called Cloudflare that went down. It affected Shopify, Dropbox, Nest, and others. Um, and uh, according to Slate.com, which I say according to Slate.com, it, it shows the centralization of these services. So if one of them goes down, then it could still, there are still services out there that could bring down a large chunk of the internet. Um, and it happens from time to time. So that's uh, an interesting point to make. We talk a lot about decentralization on the show and the dangers of centralization, although sometimes centralization could be a lot cheaper, which is why the first solutions are always centralized. But, um, and not to say that these cloud services are going away anytime soon, but it's something interesting to notice. Well, you, you could make um, the argument that. Uh by virtue of it being a cloud service that went down, that that's actually showing the decentralization. That uh, similarly, you know, previously you would see similar outage, outages affecting you know significant percentages of the internet would be more uh, geographically based because either you know right. Comcast went down in a region or there was a problem with with a particular uh, fiber cable somewhere or one of the companies that runs portions of the backbone had an issue uh, but this is kind of divorced from that it's it's at a another layer out uh and so and it's a pretty it's, lower right it's pretty uh it's it affects less i remember cloud outages that were much worse yeah well it, it's like, it's concentrated perhaps in some of the services it affects but not necessarily yeah. uh in the the distribution of the population that it affects Right, it's not like internet down went down for New York. By the way, people watching on YouTube, I'm not drinking wine right now. This is just water out of a wine glass. I don't know why I picked a wine glass. Um, maybe I should have wine after today. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about um, gerrymandering, because recently a bunch of Supreme Court rulings came down, and um, one of them concerned gerrymandering. Now, do you remember... All the way back in episode four, Aaron, when we discussed gerrymandering. It was a long time ago. I, I remember it, but I could not have told you that it was as far back as episode four. I just knew that it was yeah. way back in the archives. It's way back in the archives. And I think that the title of the show was The Proper Way to Gerrymander. So we, I basically described how you would write a, a, a computer program through Markov Chain Monte Carlo or most more likely uh, hill climbing, and you run that multiple times to make sure you don't get stuck in a local maximum. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, you could literally run millions and millions of simulations and try to find the best 
district lines that uh, will be best for your party. Now, here in the United States, I know we have some uh, people listening from abroad. Um, each state in the United States gets a certain number of representatives, and then they have to, you know, draw little regions uh, that uh, then within each region they elect a representative. So sometimes these regions, it's not like, oh, this clump of towns are always a region. No, sometimes they have jagged edges, and sometimes they have little arms that reach out and they go all over the place just so that uh, the politicians can have the voters, the particular voters that they want in the in the right districts. Right. Now, there are some rules. And, well, the, I was going to say the, yeah. the first order uh, objective is that the districts have to be uh, roughly equally sized in terms of population. So that yes. that everybody is getting a, a equal representation, at least in that kind of first order uh, method of of calculating that. Right. So last week uh, we talked, or, or two weeks ago in episode seventy two, I talked to Miriam about the uh, about the Shapley power, and Shapley power is basically when you have an election, no matter what the electoral system is. Everybody, you you can. It's a way to analyze the electoral system where everybody receives a Shapley power, and it's a number, and everyone's number adds up to one. So it gives you kind of a an idea as to how powerful people are in that election. But it's not perfect. You can't always narrow it down to a single uh, a, a single person. And so, or sorry, you can't always narrow it down to a single number. And one of the things that um, is interesting is that if you have districts of equal number, in other words, if you have five districts in your state and they have equal population, then everybody has the exact same Shapley power. So by that metric, it's fair. But, um, you know, as we see, doesn't matter uh, the mix of people you'll be voting with is <laughs> a very important uh, factor to consider. Yeah, and, 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 and you so made an example uh, on, on a smaller scale, but very much uh, along those lines with the, uh, was it the, the case of the, the three board members? And is right. it a situation where the, the other two board members are always split and you're the deciding vote 100% of the time, or the other two mem- board members always agree, and so your vote doesn't matter 100% of the time? And, yeah, and, and, and so a, a small small changes like that can dramatically shift the uh, your your perception of your influence, even if the math is identical. Yeah, or not just your perception of influence, but well, it, it, it's not just a perception; it's your actual influence, but also like what value you're getting out of the system. Right. Um, so uh, you might say, if you you're in a if you're in a group with two people who always outvote you, you know. You could say it's democratic, but it's not going to work for the third person. Which which raises two two issues. Uh, one specific to gerrymandering, I think, which is that uh, whatever you measure, that is what you'll optimize for. So if if you're measuring Shapley power, uh, then then yeah. you're going to re- come up with districts that that give you uh, always equal Shapley power values. Yes, uh, but that's so not always- going to necessarily yeah. reflect the outcome that you want. It just happens to be what you're measuring. Uh, and the flip side of that is that uh, you, you you made the comment that you know, that, that that may be uh, maybe democracy, uh, but it, it's hardly going to seem fair to the person who's always being outvoted, uh, which is which is why in our system of government uh, the protection of of minority rights in this case minority being uh, a, a numerical perspective uh, you know political minorities not necessarily. Uh, yeah. minority in, in some of the more traditional or commonly used cases uh, are, are important so that you can't just have uh, a- abuse by by majority rules, the, the tyranny of sure. the majority. Sure, sure. And that's, yeah, that's the whole, <laughs> it's a whole theory of, of government and theory of political systems. Uh, but let's, let's turn back to like the actual election system. So the Supreme Court said, and this is a very split decision, that um, we can't overturn districts for being too gerrymandered. So uh, first of all, actually, I want to go back and say there are some rules. So the first rule is that we already went over is the districts have to be equal in size uh, and population. There's another rule, actually, that they have to be contiguous, which is why you have these arms that reach out. Like, for example, I'm in a district here. This is Hakeem uh, Jeffries' district here in New York. Uh, There's an arm that reaches out let me see. I could actually look over. It actually goes that way forward. So if you look out here, 
These buildings over here, that's a different district from where I'm in right now. There's an arm that reaches out that way, and then most of the district I'm in is a completely different neighborhood that I would never go to. <laughs> so uh, it is it's it is like that. But they can't just say, okay, these people over here and these people over here are in a completely separate district. But sometimes they get creative where they're like, ah, there's a water bridge here, you know? There's a little, uh, like, it, it, it travels up the Hudson River or something. Yeah, and, and, uh, but, uh, and in some cases, that's, that's a... Uh, there's there's a legitimate motivation behind that and sometimes it's just playing the numbers yeah i mean sometimes there could be uh, a road or a river where everyone along that road or river has the same kind of um uh it makes sense to have them represented by the same person um maybe i don't know um but yeah so so the supreme court ruled that uh Absent a law from Congress, they can't jump in and say, uh, you know, hey, this these district boundaries, which are drawn by the states, are uh, are unconstitutional. And so, and I, the reason, from what I can see, is that they can't find like an objective way to do it. Um, it would have to be something written in law. Now, there are some laws that already exist. Uh, for example, the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s, which, you know, the Supreme Court uh, can get involved with. That would be racial gerrymandering. But other than that, they said they can't, um, they can't draw the line. That's something that uh, Congress has to make rules for or states have to make rules for. Yeah, it's, 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 it's however distasteful they may find it, it's outside their purview uh, to, to rule on this particular aspect. Yeah, there are there is a dissenting opinion though, and I haven't I haven't read it, so I, I don't know what whether they propose rules or they're just saying yeah we come up with something. But it does sound like it would be tough. Um, but um, it, it it is not easy to kind of draw fair and non gerrymandering uh, districts. Um, one. Let's see. Uh, There was one situation that I want to say. Oh, right. Um, You wrote here, you know, what is fair and just in this context? Um, Oh, it's just, yeah, we can't come up with a good set of rules for it. Yeah, well, it's really tough. What what are you optimizing for? Do you you want to group your your districts such that they they represent the the composition of the state as a whole? Or... Uh, do you do you want to uh, maximize the the number of uh, well do do you want to yeah, maximize the number of seats that your party well, gets? C- certainly, that's going to be the the internal motivation of of uh, partisan groups. Uh, I, I I suppose one test you could you could uh, you could make for it is what what is the political uh, disposition of the state as a whole? So if the state is you know sixty forty split one way. Well then, you should draw your districts such that the uh, the districts have an expected sixty forty outcome, um, right? In which case, your the majority party wins all of them. Um, well, no, so, no, I, I, I was going to say that so that each district is sixty forty, but so that one party gets sixty percent of the districts and the other gets forty. Uh, but oh, okay. but but you could also make an argument that that yeah, having having each district be a microcosm in that it's sixty percent majority, forty percent minority. Uh, would re- would accurately represent the state as a whole, but the result would be a hundred percent majority control of those seats. Yeah, and, and so that th- would therein be the- lies the the dilemma is that it, the the lens through which you're you're viewing how how this should be should should be represented uh, is is going to be very different and and have disparate outcomes, even if at, at a glance they seem fair and logical. Well, yeah, and that's. Uh, that seems like the worst form of gerrymandering. In fact, uh, in the past, states used to do this directly by having districts. Like, the Constitution doesn't say that you have to have districts. The Constitution just says the states send. So what states would do is they would say, hey, we." I don't think it was this extreme, but they would do something like, hey, New York has 27, um, 27 seats in Congress. And basically, there's a slate of 27 Democrats, a slate of 27 Republicans. Everyone in the states votes, and whoever wins, the entire slate goes. That would be the almost the ultimate form of gerrymandering. Um, and uh, the Supreme Court 
didn't get involved in that, but that was made illegal uh, finally in the 1960s. They said you can't do it. It's not like, you know. On the other hand, the Electoral College did. Yeah, I was going to say that's that's much more like what the Electoral College does, where most states have a winner-take-all delegates model, regardless of what the breakdown is on a district by district basis, and and even though the delegates that are sent to the Electoral College are appointed on a district by district basis. Yeah, but it's really not. um, it, It. Congress could have gone that same way, interestingly enough, but uh, it didn't. Or the Electoral College could have gone the way of of Congress. It's kind. Of, I would wonder. I would ask the question like, why the Electoral College became winner take all and Congress did not. Um, that well, I, I think the the in, in, the objective is that uh, at least the House of Representatives, which which is uh, the direct basis for the districts. Um, each each district has a rep. Uh, right. That that the objective there is to have the representative as close to their their constituency as possible. Uh, right. Right. As as opposed to uh, I I suppose you you could have your your sl- slate uh, approach still require that the person representing that district be from that district, even if they right. weren't necessarily uh, the winner of that. Run, running on a district by district basis, but uh, yeah, I, I think there was there was a, a strong motivation to to have that person represent their constituents, and and you have to keep in mind that uh, at the time the the system was put into place, uh, senators were not elected directly, and so it was a very diff- the senators were there to represent the interest of the state, and they were appointed by the state legislature. That that changed uh, with a constitutional amendment many years later, uh, and so that. That puts us in a position where the the election of senators and the election of representatives are less distinct in that sense, uh, and so it's it's right. harder to to draw a uh, kind of intuitive uh, different uh, understanding for why there's the difference there, since they are yeah less different now. Yeah, but th- there is something that you do gain, I think, by having like, you know, one representative for the district. So it's pretty clear who your representative is, even if you didn't vote for them, they still have kind of a, uh, responsibilities towards you. Um, the, uh, one day we'll have to talk about like whether proportional representation, which seems very fair is really a good idea. Cause even to me, it seems so, so fair, but if you look at it in practice in countries that have done it, it doesn't look as good. Even in a scenario where uh, you may not have a uh, a gangly gerrymandered district, such such that yeah. it, it looks weird, uh, even when you've drawn your districts compactly, you may have a scenario where you know my my representative represents uh, part of my town and part of you know and and maybe one other town and then a part of another small you know a, a chunk of a larger city, and so it's. Yeah. If I look up, you know, who who is my representative, I I don't just have to enter in what town I live in, but also you know what street and what house number on that street because it's right, it's right. not it, it it comes down to that level of granularity. It's you do have to do that right here. Yeah, for uh, sure. Like I said, there you're looking at probably three or four districts out here. I know you can well, only and, see lights, and but I could, those lights are. I would more readily yeah. expect that in a city. Yeah. Uh, but but I live in a relatively small town, and so you would think yeah. we're small enough. We should all fit into one district. In fact, yeah. we should probably have. You know, but but the, Do you? there there are dividing lines. So depending on where I live in town, I would potentially be in a different district. Yeah. Well, they <laughs> they they draw those lines. Those lines are optimized. Um, they're optimized the for most, something. It's optimized for something, right? Uh, one of the most interesting ones that when you look at it, and again. I don't think the courts should be like, well, it's clearly bad. Just look at it, you know. But uh, if you uh, look at the uh, picture for the North Carolina redistricting plans uh, earlier in this decade, yeah, they look crazy. Uh, and I'll post the pictures online, yeah, well, localmaxradio.com. The, the, the danger there was, and, and what the, yeah. the Supreme Court clearly uh, – I don't think they cited this specific uh, – terminology but they they clearly want to avoid getting into a case where uh it's like there was a supreme court case about porn uh back in maybe it was in the 60s and they they were unable to come up with a a uh 
a clear definition of what is or is not porn. And there was a justice who said, well, I know it when I see it. And, and that's, right. not, so the, to to them, that's yeah. not the kind of criteria that you want for something like gerrymandering. That yeah. it, we, we, have, we have a gut feel when we see those, those funny-shaped districts. But, but if you make uh, compactness your, your, uh, your optimizing factor, objective, your, your, yeah. your objective factor there, you can still gerrymander uh, quite effectively. You're just going to have yeah. compact fact, gerrymandered districts. Yeah, I would imagine that they would be like, okay, here's a metric of compactness, and we'll pass a law saying that uh, compactness, which could be, let's say, like the average maximum distance between something like that, yeah. um, it, it, some measure of compactness, uh, which actually, given the way that populations are distributed, could be an interesting mathematical problem in itself. But let's say you come up with some metric of compactness, I think you could probably come up with something. Even then, like that would be the law, like the compactness factor can't be more than X. And so essentially, you just put that into your program. All right, we're just going to optimize with these constraints. Now, would that end up with fair results? Maybe, but you would, st- like you said, you'd still if, be optimizing. If my goal is to uh, to ensure that party X is able to gain uh, the maximum number of seats, I can still exercise that goal within those constraints. I, I, bet I may not be able to get as many seats, but I'll still be able to m- manipulate the uh, the you know the options yeah. to to increase my odds as much as possible. We don't know the the crazy looking districts could be what the computers found, but if you tell the computers that it needs to be compact, maybe they'll find, you know, maybe those sneaky computers will still find an answer there. Yeah, well, and, it's and, just as good. and it's it's not always done on the on the basis of party line, although in many cases that uh, correlates with with other factors. But one of the things that that's been talked about a lot in the past and, and is something that the courts have been willing to wade in on is uh, is gerrymandering on a racial basis. Um, yeah. the, the case where well, like you said, see that, that sometimes is well, you, you see it going in both directions. But but the the proactive example would be, for example, um, I'm saying for example a lot. Uh, if you have an inner city district uh, that that is uh, has a a large minority population, you might redraw that district such that. Uh, you can guarantee at least one African American or one Hispanic representative in that city, uh, instead of spreading those voters across several districts. And so, even though you might have a twenty or thirty percent uh, African American population in your city, uh, if if it's if the districts are not drawn in a certain way, you could end up with all white representatives. Uh, and yeah. and. In in some scenario, in in some instances, that has been see, it has been seen as a desirable effect to guarantee a a minority representative gets elected, and so they've drawn to to do that. What, whether or not that is uh, desirable in the current climate uh, or, well, it also, or beneficial it, it also is, is an problem. open question. It, it also creates a problem because that, then you end up with more. You end up in practice, usually with more Republican districts when you do that. Well, right, because, because it, put, it usually results in you almost ghettoizing uh, all of all of your minority, which in this case usually translates into Democrat votes, into a right, single district a to have a, a strong Democratic district there. And that allows you to collect all of your, uh, again, working with, with generalizations and stereotypes to take all your your white voters and group them into other districts where they'll they'll have safer seats there as well yeah and they'll have they'll have slight majorities and so it's almost like sometimes and this has come up this is actually something that comes up decade after decade where it's like okay do you want more minority representation or do you want fair party representation yeah. and well, oftentimes and, you can't have both and it raises a, a, a larger question um which which we're kind of seeing writ large and and open question whether this has been driven by uh gerrymandering or whether this has been the driver for gerrymandering uh the 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 consensus is that we're we're diverging and so that the you know the right is moving more to the right and the left is moving more to the left and uh, that that could very much be a result of drawing these safer districts, where uh, this you know this is a safe Republican district, and so they don't need to 
to cater to moderates and, and, and vice versa. Uh, and as you draw those more and more along those lines, as opposed to you, you could uh, make your objective function for for redistricting that I want to have these districts as close to toss ups as possible. And so uh, I, I may not be able to predict what the what the the seat outcome is, but by the, by the nature of making them close races, it's going to force everybody to play to the middle. And so we're going to have mm. more moderates and more likely compromise. Uh, it's unlikely that you're going to get people to sign on to that model, though, because and, it involves relinquishing more, control. Yeah, more races will be um, in contention. Contested. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that could happen. Absolutely. Um, all right. So you have. Are you, Aaron? Are you ready to talk about the end of the world? I, I, I guess. Do we? If we don't talk about it, does that stave it off from happening? No. <laughs> well, then I guess. Not. I guess we might as well jump to it then. Okay. Uh, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that I thought I had to bring up here because it used um, it used a, a Bayesian argument for. Did, did they invoke the, the name of, the of Bayes, or or did they oh, just talk not around only did it? They, not only did they invoke the name of Bayes, they talked about Thomas Bayes, and they talked about they 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 went into a little bit of the history of it. Um, they essentially said, "Well, it's uh, they didn't really give the full impact of this is Bayes' rule, and this is how you come up with a date for the end of the world." But essentially, what they did was uh, they're talking about a book called the Doomsday Calculation. Which I'll put up. Let's see who uh, who wrote that book. It's uh, it's by William Poundstone, and it just came out on June fourth. So I haven't read the book, but I read the article about it. And so what they did was they built a posterior distribution for what the end of humanity when when is the end of humanity based on two things based on Bayes' rule, and it looks like based on uh, 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 the Lindy effect, which if you remember, we talked about. So Bayes' rule is how to update your beliefs. And so that's how to take all the information available and come up with our beliefs on when the end of humanity is. And Lindy's law kind of says, okay, if something has been around for, say, 10 years, then its expected amount of being around in the future is another 10 years. And so this is the argument. This is how the argument goes. Uh, I want to describe how the argument goes and kind of break it down because it doesn't really work for me very much. But first, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the problem of the question, like, how do you define the end of humanity? Um, That's another. Is that even a real question to ask? So I would say all life on Earth gone without anyone escaping. That is probably a hit. Or all life. Let's Let's say either. Right. That's obviously a hit to the end of humanity. But what about humans evolving into something else? Or what about the end of civilization, but there are like still stragglers all over the place? Um, so I think that both of those things are way more likely. So it's kind of an interesting thing about it. Episode 21, I, which is called Probability, Belief, and the Truth, I went over the idea that most of the questions that we ask don't really have our, our approximations. They're not really exact answers. Um, so, all right, the argument goes like this. Imagine that you're given a serial number at birth. So the first human who was born had serial number one. No, 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 wait, we're computer scientists. First, they had serial number zero. Okay, serial number zero. Uh, that would be, um, it, well, if you want to be biblical, that would be the biblical Adam. But let's say the first, uh, the first human species, uh, the first member of the human species, which again. Well, yeah, that's, that. From a, where, where do you draw the line for you are now yeah. officially homo sapien? Is there anyone who would actually say that they are a different species from their parents? I mean, there really is not a line there. Well, there are plenty so, of people who uh, used to say that, damn you, yeah. I'm not descended from monkeys. But <laughs> Right. Uh, so, um, okay. So let's assume that there was a first human, um, which in this kind of gradual world, it doesn't really exist. But um, let's say that gets serial number zero, and then everybody counts forward based on your time of birth. So the next one is serial number one, serial number two, serial number three. And all of us, based on when we were born, are serial number 100 billion or so. And so the idea is that the, the number that you get 
is if you look at a serial number on the product, you can estimate the number that they made, number of that product that they made by the expected value of double that serial number. So if you look at your product and you have serial number like 31,472 or something, then okay, about 62,000. Um, this this is this assuming for a moment, and and as you've laid this out, this is On average, a safe assumption. Well, no, I was going to say yeah. that that serial numbers are uh, sequential and starting at zero. Uh, sure, ma- many products uh, do not abide by that. So, uh, well, buyer beware when yeah. using these. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, actually, there was a story in there from World War II how they estimated the number of German tanks because the Germans did sequentially number their tanks uh so yes uh you you can do it um it helps if you in that case see a lot of examples right because you can like you you can see uh, okay this is in the upper range this is in the lower range if you see a hundred examples then you know the highest one you see is like getting pretty close to the to the top there well right because um, you're not case, only concerned with how many have there ever been but you're also uh interested in the rate at which they're being produced and and the increase right. of that rate right so as much of so, that that uh, that that slope you can map out uh the more information you have for for predicting future trends there Right. So the argument here is that, okay, if you're a human, another hundred, number 100 billion, then the expected number of humans af- born after you is another 100 billion. And given population trends, uh, that corresponds to like, I don't know, something like 760 years into the future. Uh, that will be when the last human is born. And there you go. 760 years into the future. Uh, I don't I don't know about you, Aaron, but I don't take much stock in that prediction. Um, and I'd like to see what their, how their Bayesian uh, uh, posterior is, uh, is shaped. Like, is there a significant perce- uh, probability that we last a million years? Uh, what's the probability that we don't last the next 50? I know there's a lot of people who think that the end of humanity is right around the corner. I think that's something like built into some people's brains all throughout history that the, the end is, is nigh. Uh, but, I'm, uh, I'm curious. Well, so, so it's certainly not something new to the Anthropocene, but I, I wonder whether that the severity of that has uh, increased dramatically in, in our current era. Possibly, or there's just so many more people than that there are uh, yeah, <laughs> more, cause, people, cause <laughs> more people who think do, that the Doomsday there. sects uh, go back uh, as... as at least as long as religion and probably longer. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, I think a few episodes ago, that would have been the one about, uh, we talked about the probability of an event that has never occurred, right? right? Bla- black swan events and, and the like. Right, right. And so the end of humanity, I think, would be an event that ha- would definitely fit under that. Yeah, I mean, um, there there have been extinctions of species before and mass extin- extinctions, but not an extinction right. of our species. Right, right, and it would be kind of hard to tell because those species, you know, we're looking at millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. So to look on the scale of just a thousand years is not really might not be relevant there. Um, and if you remember correctly, we looked at the difference between an email and a turkey, right? Yep. Do you remember? what the difference was uh well so so an email was uh at well it, a a response to an email was something that the longer it hasn't happened the less likely it is to happen right meanwhile a uh, a, a turkey uh or the demise of a turkey the the occurrence of thanksgiving or or was it christmas whatever the turkey consumption holiday of choice is uh that that that's a scenario, uh, perhaps more more similar to this, where <laughs> yeah, you, you you don't know when when the event's going to occur, but uh, the the longer you go without it occurring, the longer you think you're likely to go before it occurs. Yeah, well, it, it's still it, it's almost like a case where you know you're on the chopping block sometime, you just don't know when, and even that case, it's still you're still expecting double, but with an email you expect a lot more time 
once a bunch of time has already elapsed. And so the question is, has a bunch of time elapsed for humanity? And are we in an email situation with the more time we've elapsed, the more likely we are to survive? Um, I think with nuclear weapons, it is scary. Um, if we could survive uh, 100 years, another 100 years with nuclear weapons, then I think I'd feel better about the next 100. Well, so and, it and, might be, and it might be an email situation, but we're still in the we, we're still in we the still haven't survived the first hundred years with nuclear weapons. Exactly, exactly. So we're we're in an email situation with nuclear weapons, but we don't know. We're still in the period where you could get a response, and you don't want that. And, and there's there's an open question whether uh, an incident with nuclear weapons, uh, for whatever incident entails, uh, whether that would be a, a humanity-ending event. Or, or if it would just be a uh, humanity-changing event. Right, because if you think about it, what's the chance that everybody dies? That's not very likely, I think. But, but I think there is a everywhere. significant chance that uh, humans look uh, somehow evolutionarily different after a significant nuclear exchange. I mean, that's... Okay. <laughs> I, I don't know what that means, but yeah. But I, I, I think we we could be looking at a, a, a very different species after that happens. Yeah. All right. I don't I don't know if that counts, but um, I guess that counts. I mean, like if you just look at evolutionary from an evolutionary perspective, then like in a few hundred thousand years, it's almost inevitable that the uh, uh, you know that the species changes. Um, but um, here's another problem with this line of estimates. Um, first of all, notice that the estimate will get shorter as the population growth accelerates. So it's almost like more, the more people there are, the more this model predicts is going to be the end of people, yeah. which doesn't seem to make sense, right? It, I mean, unless everybody has... Uh, well, like, I, this, this it, feels like it, it runs into some, the, some of the same logic that... Um, and I, I think this is a... A statistic, a term I use very lightly there, that has been disproven, but uh, a, a number of people have made the, the claim that there are more people alive now than have ever been alive before. Uh, yeah, which, I, they're saying it's not true because there have been yeah. 100 billion. Um, but a good chunk of the people who have been alive are alive now. Like like uh, 7%, I guess, 8%. But, but yeah, that, that accelerating growth running out the clock faster and faster definitely feels similar to that. Yeah. So another question I have, why are we looking at serial numbers based on birth? Why aren't we looking at time humans have been around? Um, you know, it, it, it could easily be based on time. Like you say, okay, humans have been around. I don't know. Like, let's say civilization. Like, okay? I, I would counter I that. Civilization been around. Yeah. I, I would counter that with what do you think the uh, the civilization ending event is going to be or humanity ending event is going to be? If you think it's something based on human-human interaction, then I think there's a, a, a excellent justification for looking at number of humans that have lived or or perhaps more, more so number of humans alive simultaneously um, because, mm, yeah. because you've got more human-human interactions there. And so whatever that event is, is, would seemingly become more and more likely. If you think it's going yeah. to be a uh, an external environmental issue like uh, asteroid collides with Earth and wipes out humanity, uh, then then that I would say is is going to be much more of a time based. We should be looking at that in the same way that we look at you know hundred year storms or something like that. Because no matter how many people you have on Earth, um, um, unless we're looking at a scenario where we can divert the course of the asteroid, that's not going to change the outcome of that event. Yeah, it just seems to me that humanity as a whole, civilization is developing in very unpredictable ways. And this is not like this is definitely not a case of a turkey or like a, a lifespan to something where you know there's a beginning and an end. So um, we could last a lot longer than um, than predicted, um, unless we screw it up. <laughs> so the end is not near. Uh, I I think though that you know. Just looking at the resiliency of humanity, look, there was like the Ice Age where uh, people survived in, in caves and, um, you know, proto-humans. And so 
destroying all of humanity seems a little bit uh, too far-fetched, I think. Well, and, and there are some uh, climate scientists who believe that we're on the in the, the beginnings of the next Ice Age, but uh, we're certainly not going to live to see that mean anything. Yeah. We, we, we being uh, you and me. Uh, humanity, yeah. uh, hopefully. Um, we'll see. Well, and, and if you're uh, looking at resilience, then, then the two obvious uh, approaches there are, are uh, one, the Elon Musk approach or Jeff Bezos approach, that we need to distribute our... Uh, our civilization across multiple planets to uh, to stave off the effect of, of a single doomsday event. Do you really think uh, it would be tough to have like a self-sufficient civilization on Mars that could survive if Earth... Imagine if Earth explodes, right? Yeah. And you have a small number of humans living on Mars. What would that be like? How would they even survive there? Well, I, I think that's going to be one of... That's what Elon Musk tried to do. That's going to be one of the main major motivations is to make make it as as self sufficient as possible. Be, partially yeah. for 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 those reasons, but but I think mo- primarily because it's so expensive to get stuff there that as much right. as you can make you know re- recycling and self sustaining as possible, then that's that's uh, a huge cost savings. I- I would imagine as soon as people get to Mars, though, they would rely on – maybe they wouldn't rely on stuff coming from Earth immediately. But I don't think they could be in a situation where they can last indefinitely without new um, – or, or grow or thrive or, or grow their Martian economy without uh, new people, machines, things coming from Earth. Well, I mean we, we had the same uh, scenario with the the colonization of the, the, the Americas that – uh, when they came over initially, uh, they were dependent on shipments of finished goods uh, and, and in some cases, things as simple as, as food and other staples from, from Europe on a, a yearly basis. Uh, and eventually, they, they became largely self-sufficient, even if they continued that, that exchange. You, you have to have – okay, but that's on the earth. That's, you can survive – in the Americas, not very easily. Like a lot of, it was very tough. Uh, some of the early settlers to the Americas um, for Native Americans, life was very tough. But <laughs> it's nothing compared to Mars. I don't think that you could have a self-sustaining. Like you would have to have a large population, a large specialization. Well, are, are, You'd have to have a whole industry providing air cover and suits and proper. Um, you know, proper places to have soil and I, who knows what the effects of low gravity are going to be, you know. So uh, you you would have to have entire industries on Mars that are required just for survival. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. if you're a small family going to um, the Americas in the 17th century and you, you don't really have a whole – you're just going to try to survive in the wilderness, you have a shot. I mean, maybe not a good well, shot, I was gonna say but in Mars, you don't. I, I think that makes it even more like the uh, the the colonial uh, uh, establishment argument that that for a long time you are you're you're barely scraping by in a a subsistence manner, and I think uh, that's that's what it's going to be like for at least a generation on Mars. Um, Except subsistence in on Earth means. You know, essentially, these these small farmers. They're, you're raising right. some. Uh, you're raising a few animals. You're growing some crops. It's fine. Subsistence on Mars is totally different. It has to be a much more sophisticated civilization just to reach subsistence because you have to deal with air. You have to deal with soil. You have to deal with the fact that yeah, but, nothing is natural there. But they're getting bootstrapped up pretty significantly by the fact that uh, the the most advanced technology available to us is their starting point. Right, right. But then (laughs) if Earth goes, I mean, I guess if you have a Martian population of millions, you might be able to make it work. I just don't see it working with a population of thousands. um, I don't don't see a genetically uh, sustainable presence on Mars anytime soon. Yeah, Uh, yeah, exactly. I I think a a resource-sustainable presence uh, settlement is is going to come a lot faster than than perhaps uh, we're we're expecting. You think we can't even get back to the moon? Well, 
Anyway, uh, did you hear about that? Uh, well, b- asteroid? B- before before we move on to that, yeah. the the I, I said that there were there were two obvious answers. One is is right. get to other planets. The other is to close the mine shaft gap. Uh, that if we want to be more resilient against catastrophic events, we need to build more underground colonies. Hmm. Right, because that's uh, impervious to um, what nuclear disaster and. Anything else? Uh, less susceptible to global warming I or, guess so. or effects yeah. of, of climate change on the surface. Access to geothermal energy. Okay. Okay. So the best it, mushrooms all grow in caves. Both of these sound like not particularly pleasant living situations. Who said survival so, was going to be pleasant? I, no, no. I think I'll stay here in Brooklyn. Uh, okay. So um, what was it? Oh, I wasn't going to bring this up, but did you hear about that asteroid that has what, like a, I think a quintillion. Um, oh, was it, was this the gold asteroid? The gold asteroid, yes. It has a quintillion dollars worth of gold in it. Although, what that means is, you know, some people are saying, well, I'm on a lot of uh, crypto message boards, right? And a lot of the Bitcoin people are saying, oh, see, this is going to make gold worthless. And I definitely wouldn't go that far because, first of all, we don't know how much gold is in the ground. There could be nearly infinite gold in the ground. The question is, how expensive is it to get it out and get it into the hands of people? Right. This is the the problem we've had with with oil and phosphorus and nitrogen and and other uh, natural materials that have, uh, have significant value. We we think, well, this this is all there is, and so that's going to set the price, and prices are going to go up now that it's dwindling, and then we find more. Or we right. knew it was there all along, but all of a sudden, now that it that that the the supply appears to be dwindling, uh, it's cost effective to access uh, a new a new source. Yeah, yeah, and, and w- it wouldn't be cost effective to get this asteroid unless the price of gold were astronomical. The price of space exploration mining dropped. And even if it did, it wouldn't be like all that gold came down at once. No, you would have to send machines up there and then it would mine a little bit of gold and come back and who knows how. And and gold doesn't have the – it it does have some industrial uses, but it doesn't have the the utility that something like uh, helium-3 does, which which is one of the major uh, motivations for uh, establishing moon bases. Uh, there's there's talk of mining the helium three on the moon and that that could basically power uh, ex- extraplanetary yeah. colonies and exploration. Interesting. Yeah, but I, I think if if gold is going for is going at a premium on Earth, then yeah, people would want to send up um, would would want to send rockets up there and try to yeah, well, th- uh, there's machinery up there and try to get it. But there's it a reason that in, in science fiction uh, stories yeah. you you don't hear about uh, asteroid gold miners. You hear about asteroid mm. water miners because uh, c- certain things become far more valuable given their utility uh, once you're in right. a, a resource-constrained situation like that. Yeah, but – and also if you just imagine it, like is it more cost-effective to mine the gold asteroid or is it more cost-effective to uh, build a deeper gold mine? Hmm. Um, <laughs> I think – or to like you know, e- even – it seems almost well, and, and that, like there's uh, there's some statistic about like the the largest uh, source of of gold on on Earth is dissolved in the oceans. That there's you know billions upon billions, perhaps trillions of dollars worth. But uh, un- until we find a way oh, wow. to basically distill it out, uh, that's inaccessible to us. So that could be like there's a desalinization plant to right. take salt out of ocean water to make it drinkable you can have a de-goldification plant that would uh that would take the ocean water and extract the gold all of i mean i don't know what the engineering challenges are for that but all that could seem like it's a lot more cost effective although i i do see the um the uh high impact of a new story being like an entire (laughs) asteroid made of pure gold which is i'm sure not what it is but um (laughs) It oh, the irony, if that's than... the one that ends humanity. <laughs> we wanted the gold too much. In fact, someone sent up a machine to bring it to Earth because they thought it would make rich, and they, they brought too much of it at once. And 
Anyway. All right. So you, um, when I sent that, um, was it when I sent the doomsday calculation? You, you sent me an article I, I, in response. I, I about- think I had seen it beforehand, but it seemed like an apt response when, when you sent me that link. So it was about monkeys who had reached the Stone Age. Yeah, so uh, uh, apparently uh, there there are certain types of of, uh, of monkeys. Uh, I think it's particularly the uh, the capuchin. I think that's how it's pronounced. Monkeys okay. who have who have started uh, spontaneously uh, spontaneous is not the right word, but but without being taught, they are uh, are are beginning to use use uh, use stone tools. Who taught them? <laughs> Somebody must have snuck <laughs> well, cause, around because we've we've known for a long time that you can teach apes uh, to to. I could do teach them a lot of things. Yeah, but but that's not the same as them coming up with it uh, on their own and and uh, and and using using tools to manipulate their environment around them. And so and so there's the argument being made that that they're entering the Stone Age, uh, and uh, this this raises a couple of of interesting questions. Uh, the biggest of so so. It's it's kind of a corollary to the are we alone in the universe? Um, so they have a they have an economy now. It's uh, it's a it's a stone based economy. Get on, um, get in the ground floor on stone tools. Yeah, stone coin. It's their startup, stone coin. Uh, but yeah, so I, there's there's one of the greatest questions is are we alone in the universe? And and a perhaps less uh, grandiose uh, corollary to that is uh, what's so special about humans? Um, and and this seems to indicate that uh, maybe maybe there's not so much that special about us. Maybe it's that that uh, g- given given enough time uh, that that any number of of uh, organisms can evolve uh, to to develop higher intelligence. Uh, and one of the the first signs of that is uh, is tool making and tool use. Well, that's that's a possibility. I never really thought of tool use as something that. Um, distinguishes humans because animals do have some tool. Like even without this story, animals always had some tool use, but I want to think about that a little more. Um, So all these monkeys buying and selling stone tools, who's going to get into some monkey business? (laughs) All right. I think we got to end there. We got to end with the monkey business. We got into some things today that I was not thinking we were going to get into. <laughs> so that was a good discussion. Any final thoughts before we close out today's podcast? Well, I, I guess the good news is that they're projecting uh, it, it won't be until the year uh, 3,500,000 until the monkeys develop nuclear weapons. So we've, we've got some time to figure out how to deal with them. Oh, boy, that's going to be a problem. Uh, chimpanzees with nuclear weapons. Is, well, those, these are monkeys, not even chimps, but still... Yeah. I, I, I yeah, I don't know. Gonna have to go do some research and watch the rest of those Planet of the Apes movies. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show. Send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.